0: Jesus calls us to um, well l- let me let me set the b- let me step back a second before I go right into it and explain what's going on um so I, I sent you guys an email and you guys know that my my uh if you read the email you know that my father-in-law Jens dad is in late stage pancreatic cancer and um he's in he's in really bad shape um and um so it's been a week where I've done a lot of um Watching the kids uh, m- and had to f- to had to take some time off work so that Jen could be with her dad at the hospital a lot. Um, thank you for Barbara. You just asked. I know several of you guys are asking how he's doing. Um, he had a surgery yesterday. Uh, as I detailed in the email to help make some room for food because he, he hasn't been able to eat in, in several days, um, which at his stage of cancer is, is really bad. So he wants to be able to eat. He wants more time. And uh, so the doctors are hoping... Um, that this will help, um, and uh, but so far the surgery, at least yesterday, has not. W- we're not able. Bea- we haven't seen yet its success. He's still been quite sick, um, stomach-wise. So I don't want to go into the details of it, but if you want to know more details, I can explain to you. But it's it's you know it's just such a difficult thing. So really appreciate your continued prayers for peace in his heart, and for health to his body. There, one of the reasons why Mark and Marsha want more time from this surgery. Is because they want to keep praying for the miracle of God that they're asking God to do to heal Mark, and um, Mark is also aware that the Lord may take him home, and um, it's it's an amazing um, thing to watch your father-in-law, people close to you, look face to face with the reality of eternity, and to have them talk about how the fact is that in. In a few days or weeks, they may uh, not be on earth, but now in God's eternal uh, presence and uh, have to stand before him. And um, so thank you for your prayers. One of the things that meant was that I ended up having to ch- uh, change the preaching because I didn't have as much time to go into um, 1 Corinthians 6, as I, I'd hope. so we're going to do something different today. I, I went back to a sermon from many years ago and kind of refurbished and, and actually ended up spending quite a bit of time on it anyway, but, but still, I think, um, I, for, for whatever reason, I, I, I think this is where the Lord has led us today. Um, so let me just pray, and then we'll, we'll start. Lord, I just pray that you would anoint your word today with your power, and that you would, Father, wash your people through your son's care for your church. You nourish your people. You cherish your people. As every husband is called to do, you lay down your life for your wife, for your bride. As you want every husband to do for his wife, you nourish your church you cherish your church and you are faithful to your church through all her ups and downs, through all her victories and failures. You are a faithful husband, Lord Jesus. And so your bride sits before you now asking to be washed with the word, a pure water of the word, the power of the Holy Spirit would renew us once again, renew our minds according to the truth that is in Christ Jesus and nourish us with the best food and cherish us with the greatest heart in the universe, your heart. And Lord, as an aside, because of where we were going to go, it's on my heart to pray, and maybe we'll get to this next week, that every husband would long and yearn to be the husband that you are to his church. That every husband would long to see your glory and your husbanding and long to lay his life down for his bride and long to nourish and cherish his bride and long to forsake all others, to never abandon her, but to care for her. And may those wives or those wives who've been wives but are not now who are in this room even sit before you without husbands any longer may they look to you as their husband redeemer and realize that you still are their husband and I pray this in Jesus name amen so I have kind of preached (laughs) a little bit of the sermon that was to be this morning in that prayer but still on my heart where do we go When the waves call us away from seeing Jesus, where do we go when the winds are so fierce that though we want to keep walking with him, though we want to keep being faithful to him, though we want to keep trusting in him, it is so hard. Where do we go when sin accuses us because we've failed again? Sometimes it's easy to believe God for forgiveness when we've failed the first time at something. But what if we failed for the 300th time? It's something that we've struggled with for years. Where do we go to believe he's not going to give up on us? Where do we go when we want to wis- risk for God but we don't know if he'll meet us? We want to go to Haiti. But it's far away. It's poor. There are diseases there. There are soldiers there. There's corruption there. We're getting on a plane and we can say we're going to one of the most unstable places on the earth. Are we going to get on a plane to come back? Or not? How do we take that risk like Hannah and Sarah are taking? Don't mean to scare you ladies. (laughs) You're taking a risk that's not normal. Where do we go when we suffer as we're trying to stay faithful in marriage where the other person is not being faithful? They don't show the love, the care, the devotion that we're trying to show. But yet we see that God is very jealous for our marriage. And he takes divorce very seriously. And so we're trying to stay faithful. Or in singleness, where do we go when the world tells us that we can have sexual intimacy right now, but God says, no, that is a serious unfaithfulness to me, your husband redeemer. Where do we go when that person is so attractive and so willing, but we have to betray our Lord, but we, we find our heart wanting that? In those moments, how do we know he's real? How do we know he's worth it? How do we know he'll be who he says? How how do we go to him in faith to receive the strength he wants us to have faith for? Well, for such a time as that, for, for those times, we have God's word. We have his spirit. We have his people. But especially in those times, what's so critical is to find him in his solid seeable, objective, authoritative word that his Holy Spirit would speak through something that's not over here one second, then over here this second. No, God says it. It's true. And his word becomes a rock that we can hold on to. And that when the rubber meets the road, we can keep driving towards him. For such times as these, we have Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all the New Testament. And for good reason. It's a psalm about everything. (laughs) It's a psalm in just a few verses about everything that Jesus will do from beginning to end. And it's written, oh, about a millennia before Jesus ever breathed a breath on earth. It's astounding if you take time to carefully look at it in its predictive reliability. It's beautiful and rich. And it's here so that we can know that Jesus is who he says he is. It was written a thousand or so years before Jesus came so that we can know that God controls history. And he did what he said in bringing Jesus. And Jesus did what he said he would do in this psalm. It's written so that we can know he will be faithful to the end and he will be faithful in the middle where we live right now. So let's read Psalm 110 together and ask the Lord to help us stand on it, stand on his son. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. And I think we have it here. Verse one. A psalm of David. The Lord, that's Yahweh, capital letters, L-O-R-D. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, the Lord, not Yahweh, Adonai, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore... He will lift up his head. Let's pray again. (laughs) Holy Spirit, breathe on your word. Breathe on your word. Anoint these words of yours, Lord, with power in our hearts. Help me to know what to say and what not to say. Help me not to say anything more than I should. And Lord, help me to be caring and honoring of your word and your people in preaching now. I ask this in Jesus' holy name for your honor and glory. And for the good of your people, Lord, that I am privileged to walk with in this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 110 is in the genre of what's called kingly psalms. Kingly psalms fall throughout the Psalter. These are either about the God-anointed king of Israel and the nations, um, or, or human kings who are always either David or his descendants. So there's a lot of kingly psalms. And they're usually about is Israel's kings in some manner or another. But, but what we'll see in no short order in this psalm is that it immediately sets itself apart from other kingly psalms in its miraculous and prophetic character. This psalm quickly presents itself as doing something very different than most of the psalms that talk about the king in the psalms. If we pay attention, we'll see this speaker is saying something in this psalm that really cannot fit any historic king of Israel. It doesn't make sense. This psalm, written about a thousand years before Jesus, I've, I, as I've said, can ultimately be about no one else but Jesus Christ, the final and eternal Davidic king and the ruler of the world. In fact, this psalm so prophetically identifies Jesus That it is, as I said, it's the most quoted or referenced Old Testament passage in the whole New Testament. Yet, it's not a typically known psalm. Like Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd. What we're dealing with in this kingly psalm is direct, miraculous, predictive prophecy of Jesus that portrays his ministry, his deity, and his second coming. And it should fill our hearts with courage. It should fill our hearts with hope. It should fill our hearts with awe at God's power. It it should cause us to worship him, that he's real, that he's really the king, that he's really where he says he is and that he's really going to do what he says he's going to do. It should give us power to be faithful to him, keep running to him each day in our need, and to keep our eye out for his return. So let's go through this verse by verse and, and be nourished. Part one starts out with this subscript, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, that capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, when you're usually hearing psalms in church, exegeted or talked about or preached on, you usually don't pay a lot of attention to that authorship by david or by asaph or that little subscript that says a psalm of david but i start there because the most important question the most important question the most important question you can ask about this psalm is who wrote it everything hangs on that Derek kinder says nowhere in the psalter does so much hang on the familiar title a psalm of david from the outset the writer claims to be david and there's nothing out of ordinary about David writing psalms. He's the greatest psalm writer. or the Most psalms, I believe, are written by David. I could be wrong on that. But, but the grave matter here is this little phrase. A psalm of David combined with this first line, Yahweh says to my Lord. David is recounting for us a conversation between Yahweh, the I am that I am, the God of Israel, and someone else that he calls his Lord. And the implications of this cannot be overstated. When Jesus was battling the Pharisees in Matthew 22, on the Tuesday before Easter Sunday, on the Tuesday before Good Friday, leading up to his crucifixion, some people think he was baiting them when he brought this. But he, he came up to them and he said, they were gathered together, Jesus goes up to them and he asks them a question, and he says, who do you think, what do you, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, "And how is it that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No son can call himself the Lord of his father. And the, <laughs> the Scriptures say, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions they were they were freaked out this guy knows the scriptures and their implications better than we do and we got to do something about him i think that's what's under the texts because the next time they saw jesus he was on trial before them and they said to him are you the christ Son of the living God. And he said to them, with death and crucifixion awaiting him, he looked them in the eye on that Good Friday morning in that fraud of a trial. And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, coming in power. And, and he alluded again to the same psalm. Did you see it? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's also alluding to Daniel, but he pulls them together. Daniel in the psalm here. You will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of God. So the coming king in the psalm is not only David's descendant, but David's Lord. And of course, since the only one in Israel who could be Lord over the king was God himself. The only one in Israel who could be Lord over the king was God himself. Then the king in the psalm who's talking to Yahweh, God, must also be God. Do you see the implications here? Of all the nations, Israel knew that there was only one God. And yet David pulls the curtain on the nature of God and his Trinitarian character. God is speaking to God. The son of God, as the Messiah was known, wasn't known at that point as the son of God, but it was, it was like David was God's son. He was God's anointed. He was God's favored one. All of Israel was God's son. But we're seeing here, David tell the Hebrew nation, a millennia before Jesus comes, God has a son who is God. This is the deity of Christ in the Old Testament, in the scriptures of the Jewish nation. David's confessing Jesus is Christ, divine, God. It's it's incredible. You can't make this stuff up. God is reliable. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he'll do. And what does David tell us that Yahweh says to his divine Lord? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, this is beautiful. He says to his son, sit at my right hand until, for a time, come, be with me, until, until, until. There's a time period. Where he's going to wait at God's right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Rather than ruling the world in person immediately, y- rather than bringing his son and saying, here's my son, he now rules over everything, Yahweh begins this vision in effect by calling the Messiah away from earth, right? He's somewhere else such that he has to, Yahweh has to say to him, come to me and sit at my right hand. Well, where was he before? So he's somewhere else and Yahweh has to say, come up to where I am and wait until... Ascend to my right hand of authority and power and wait until your enemies are made a footstool under your feet. It's a curious thing for a legitimate king to be told to wait on his, fool, on his reign. But, but a thousand years before Christ comes to earth, David is telling us about a major doctrine of Christ, the ascension of the Messiah. Leaving this earth and moving to the Father's right hand and waiting there Waiting there in this season where there's a process going on, where enemies over time are being made to sit under his feet. So, David, in this little verse here, is describing the time period of 2,000 years that all of us seated here find ourselves in today. We are in there, verse 1, right? we find ourselves waiting for the Messiah to return. Because after Jesus rose from the grave, God called him up to heaven. And as Hebrews 10, 13 says, citing this psalm, Jesus has been there waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 2,000 years doesn't seem like a short amount of time to wait. So it's it's really good for us to know that 1,000 years before that, God said there would be this time when we'd have to wait, when Jesus would have to wait until he was fully ruling the way that he will rule, while God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Folks, each day we're up against so much. Temptation, I know it, right? Trials, we know it. Discouragement and death for all of us, for our family. You know, we've been talking about it. Cancer, old age. We live in a world also increasingly antagonistic to our faith in Jesus. Those of us who are long in tooth like me aren't used to seeing our nation hate Christians like they're starting to hate Christians. And those of us who are long in tooth like me can see that this is a trajectory that's growing, increasing, more and more and more and more. And yes, we're not being thrown in prison. But the church, the confessing church, the orthodox church, the biblically faithful church, and those Christians, I I can tell you, I was around in the early 80s. <laughs> we're being hated like we've never been hated before. And we're not in prison. But the trajectory doesn't look good for our freedom in this country and our freedom from persecution. We're not there yet, but it looks bad. <laughs> and you know this. You feel it. You can see it. Netflix is against you now. Disney is against you. Right? And here we are not seeing Jesus enthroned on David's throne not seeing all things under his feet but God knew we would be up against this kind of world he knew we would have to wait he 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 knows our vulnerability to doubt and so he gives us scriptures like this scriptures like Psalm 10 that say I'm in control I'm in control I told you you'd have to wait I told you my son would wait he's coming all things are being made To fall under his feet. But there's a waiting time. I told you this. I'm not surprised. Don't be surprised yourselves. So this psalm fills us with confidence. If we meditate on it. That Jesus Christ. His divinity. His ascension. His sitting at the right hand of God waiting. That this is real. David saw these things. Spoke of them. So clearly. From centuries early. So that we could know. That the God of miracles sees all things. Holds all things. But there's another implication in this psalm. (laughs) Have we even moved out of verse 1? Don't worry, we're going to move faster after this. There's another implication in this psalm, one that's more than just about waiting. In Acts 2, on the day that is on the church calendar right now, the day of Pentecost, the day when the Spirit falls, that's what happened this Sunday in church history. On that day of Pentecost, that very day, Peter the apostle is trying to explain to the crowd about the miracle, about the wind, about the fire alighting on the heads of the disciples. When when all men, all the crowd gathered from all these different nations heard all the Christians speaking in all these different languages and they understood them, hearing them in their own languages. And Peter alludes to Joel and this prophecy that God will pour out his spirit in the last days on all people, on sons and daughters. And all will—all will, of his people will see dreams and have visions and they will all prophesy. Saying this is it. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Joel predicted. And then he speaks of David predicting Christ. And, and Peter says this. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Peter says, Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all of God's people through the Christ is a fulfillment and an evidence of what our psalm is telling us this morning, that Jesus has ascended to God's right hand To pour out his spirit in his reign now that started. To pour out his spirit on us on earth. John 16, 7, 8 says this. Jesus says there, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. And then he goes on to explain the kinds of convictions the spirit would bring. But you see, the Holy Spirit would not come in power until Jesus answered Yahweh's call, sit at my right hand. The new covenant had to be enacted by Jesus' blood being shed, by his death and burial, by his resurrection, and then his going up to Yahweh to sit at his right hand. And from that place, he says, if I go away, I will send him to you, the Spirit. Because now that Jesus is reigning, he has sent out his spirit that he might reign in us and fill us with power to be his people and his witnesses. That's what Jesus reigning at the Father's right hand right now means for you. It means power for you. It means strength for you. It means grace for you. Let's see this in the psalm as the psalmist continues. Verse two, the Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, I can't explain all these things here, especially the last two lines, but I do think these passages can rightly be seen as finding a kind of fulfillment in Pentecost, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the power of this age. Through the outpouring of the Spirit, From the proclamation of the gospel from Zion in Jerusalem where the Spirit was first poured out on Pentecost into Judea to the ends of the earth, we see Jesus ruling now in the midst of his enemies. We see his gospel go out. We see the Holy Spirit take rule over people's hearts as they come to Christ and their lives are changed and renewed. We see in every born-again person who finds in their heart a new power and a new law at work to love God and to fight their sin and their selfishness, we see Jesus' mighty scepter ruling. We see his people offer themselves freely, that we are now able and made willing to follow Jesus, not perfectly, not without struggle, but definitely. Because his power, his rule, his scepter is changing us and ruling in us. Our next verse, let's go to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Todd, did I say that right? How would you say it, though? All right, all right. You weren't just being nice. <coughs> Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Many years ago at Cherrydale Baptist Church, I was, I was there with Andrew Pennington. I was preaching my first sermon series there. I don't know if I told you guys this yet, but I, 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 my, my first sermon series, I called it <laughs> Better Than Psychic. That was my first sermon series. It was called Better Than Psychic, and it was about predictive prophecy. It was about how reliable God is in his Old Testament to say and do in the future what he's going to say and do. And, and these, this is one of these verses where you just look at this and you just have to bow down and you have to say, God is psychic. <laughs> like he, he, he knows what he's going to do and he does it so far into the future. He tells you exactly what he's going to do. And here he says to this Lord, David's Lord, Yahweh says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> And then he calls us to do some studying because we're just like, what the heck is he talking about, <laughs> right? So to understand what Yahweh is saying here, we need to learn about Melchizedek who interacts with Abraham in Genesis 17. He comes out of nowhere and he vanishes into nowhere. <laughs> the book of Hebrews spends a lot of time on those passages trying to explain Melchizedek in Genesis 17 to us. But, but here's what we can know. We put together Genesis and Hebrews. Melchizedek was a priest of God the Most High. That's what Genesis tells us and Hebrews tells us. He was a real priest of Yahweh before Moses. In the middle of Abraham's journey, his faith journey, Melchizedek shows up as a true priest of Yahweh. And he's also the king of Salem. He's the king of Jerusalem at that time. And listen, this is really important. This is really important. Because if the king in our psalm, in Psalm 110, if the Lord, Jesus, we know it's Jesus, if he's going to be a priest, as Yahweh says here, and he's going to be a king, as David says, he cannot be an Old Testament priest. He cannot be a priest under the Mosaic Covenant, because the Mosaic Covenant expressly forbids the king of Israel from also being a priest in Israel. Can't have the same office. The president can't be a Supreme Court justice, right? Too much power in one guy. The king cannot be a priest. The priest cannot be a king. But this guy in Psalm 110 is a priest and a king. But it doesn't work in that covenant of Moses. He must be a priest under a different covenant and a different order. And David says it plain here. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is that? Well, Melchizedek is the king priest who pronounces a divine blessing on Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he blesses him. And then Abraham tithes to him. And this is a sign of his superiority over Abraham. Hebrews explains. he's The lesser blesses the greater. Hebrews says, The covenant and the priesthood of Melchizedek that this king in our psalm is called to be a priest in the line of, it, it is a superior covenant than Abraham's covenant that will come through Moses. Not the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant that will come later. See, I know this is kind of like nitty gritty, but it's so beautiful if we can get this. The implication of this is that David, who's a king under the Mosaic Covenant, who loved the Mosaic Covenant, is saying there is another covenant. There is a better covenant. There is a superior priesthood, greater than the priesthood of Aaron's sons and Moses and the temple with animals and blood offerings. There's a better covenant coming. There's a covenant coming with an eternal priest who will never stop being a priest for us. His life will never end. And now we know who our eternal priest is, our King Jesus, who in a priestly life offered himself as the sacrifice of a priest for our sins on the cross, and who now sits at the right hand of God, not just as king, but as priest, interceding for you right now. See, now we have a little bit of more information on what in the world did Jesus do when he went up to God, not just to pour out his spirit, but to sit at God's right hand. What's he doing all that time? He went to God's right hand so that he could spend his time praying for you, interceding for you. God wants to save you forever to the uttermost. And he has a priest who's up to that, he has a priest who can do that because he never dies. So he can save you forever because he can intercede for you forever. God wants to save generations and multitudes. That's part of why he's taking thousands of years because he wants thousands of generations in heaven. And he can save them because he lives forever. The author of Hebrews says about Psalm 110, about this priest, he says, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I've said this to you before, but it's a needed reminder. I know I need to be reminded of it again and again, and I believe you all do well to be reminded of it again and again. Every moment of every day of your lives, Jesus Christ is at God's right hand securing his father's constant flow of mercy and grace and power for you all the time. He was a servant when he came on earth and he doesn't stop being a servant now that he's in heaven. That's what he does. That's what he does. Our servant king continues to serve you and me, continues to wash our feet. And through that intercession, he guarantees our constant acceptance before God. We have a priest forever. Do you see how trustworthy God's word is though? This is a thousand years before Jesus ever cried in that little manger in Bethlehem. Maybe he didn't cry, he was the perfectly obedient infant. (laughs) I think he cried. But a thousand years before that happened, in a different covenant, David is telling us everything that's going to come and be. Everything's going to change, David says. This priest won't be like the priest we have right now, David says. I mean, it's just incredible. This man who's coming won't be just a man, David says. He'll be God. <laughs> He's giving us a theology lesson on Christianity that... And <laughs> God is seeking to convince you this morning... That Jesus is who he said that he 's reliable, that he's trustworthy, and that his plans, his grace it will be there for you, it will unfold just as He says, Finally, the psalm closes by returning to the theme but by re- returning to the theme of Jesus as king, but now he's coming in conquest, verses five through seven, the Lord, and now we see the switching of persons. Now the psalmist is talking about Jesus because it's no longer Yahweh. It's no longer Yahweh, the word for Lord there. It's now Adonai. The Lord is at your right hand. So in other words, Jesus is at Yahweh's right hand, right? Because that's what he said earlier. Come and sit at my right hand. The Lord is at your right hand. So David is now speaking to Yahweh. The Lord is that's Jesus, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So now we behold the king, still in the place of authority, at Yahweh's right hand. That's what it means to be at the right hand of Yahweh. It's a place of authority. But he's no longer sitting. He's gotten up. (laughs) He's done waiting. He's done watching so much of the world careen off the road that he intended. He's done watching it give itself to sin, to corruption, to injustice, to rebellion. David sees the day when the king will say, I've had enough. It's time for me to judge the world. Here is his answer for every government that persecutes his bride and murders his people. Here's his answer for every one of us who lives in unrepentant opposition to him. Revelation 19 puts it this way. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horse's There's a lot of symbolism here. Christians have different views on exactly how all this pans out in timing and in sequence, but this is really, really clear. Jesus Christ, the Lord of Psalm 10, is coming back to his earth in great power to end the rebellion of mankind, to judge all people, the living and the dead, and to establish his full, visible, and eternal reign as the true king over all creation. His return isn't figurative. It's not some philosophical return to the ideals of Jesus or some abstract consequence of the spirit of love. No, he is coming back in power, personally and physically, and it will be obvious to the whole world do you know what the disciples saw and heard when Jesus first ascended to the Father's right hand of Yahweh before their very eyes? It tells us this in Acts. It says, and while they were gazing, actually, I don't know if this is in Acts, and I don't have the reference here, but this is from the word of God. I'm sorry, I forgot the reference, but here's what, here's what we're told about Jesus' ascension. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Did you hear that? As if they knew all the critical higher theologians over the years who will turn Jesus' bodily resurrection into a poem about love and idealism and turn it into meaninglessness. No, these angels will have none of the higher critics destroying the resurrection of Christ. He the angel says to him, he will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He left as a person, physically, in a resurrected body, that's how he's coming back. Jesus himself likewise said in Matthew 24, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory they will see it like you see lightning everywhere and he tells us know this if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, he writes, a couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, they play softball and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy, Piper writes. There, there's nothing inherently wrong with seashells and softballs and boating. I, I want to be part of all those things. <laughs> and maybe not the um, the softball part. But there's nothing wrong with softball. It's just not my thing. I want to be playing tennis, tennis <laughs> as, as you guys know. God gave us these things to enjoy. But what Piper is saying is that if your life is spent on yourself only and you don't give your life to Jesus to care for others, that day is not going to be a pleasant day for you when he returns to call you to an account for what he's given you. The Lord is urging us to live our lives today in light of that day and as our merciful priest forever interceding for us, he has infinite resources of grace and mercy to help us every day, moment by moment, to continue to take on, as Kevin taught us about a few weeks ago, his easy yoke and his light burden that we might deny ourselves and love him and love others and find true life in doing so and be filled with his joy. He has that power to give us every moment. so that we can live lives that when we see him, when he comes, we won't be ashamed. We'll say, Lord, I wasn't perfect, but you worked good things in me. You were gracious to me. You kept me going. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh God, I I just want to take a second to pray right now. God is sure as we are standing or sitting in this room right now, this world will disappear to us like a dream. And either you will come to us in your coming or very soon we will go to you in death. God, I pray for every soul in this room And perhaps every soul that should be in this room. Lord, do whatever you need to do in our lives so that we would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that we would not hear, I never knew you. Lord, be merciful to us. Let me close with this question. How real is Jesus to you? How real are his promises of mercy and his power? How real is his return to you? Do you believe he's really there for you right now, interceding for you? Does all this coming back and shattering kings, does this return of Jesus, does it seem like a sci fi movie, like Hollywood? Too cataclysmic, too supernatural. I can sympathize with that. This is mind-blowing stuff we're talking about. But here's, here's something we must remember. The Old Testament is full of predictions about Christ, about his first coming. Things written like today, even thousands nearly, but certainly in other places, certainly thousands and hundreds of years before he came. And and we can see now, from the vantage point of 2019, looking back over history, we can see in so many ways that God was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do through Jesus Christ. And in so many other ways. Just a short, brief sample. Genesis 49 tells us Jesus would descend from Judah. Isaiah 11 promised he would be a descendant of Jesse. Jeremiah 23 promised he would be a descendant of David. Isaiah 42 predicted he would make a covenant with the Gentiles when there was no such covenant known. Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7 predicted he would be born of the woman's seed and a virgin. Micah 5 told us exactly what city he would be born in. Malachi 3 told us he would come in person to the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel 9 predicted exactly at what time period in history that Jesus would appear in Israel. That is after Jerusalem would be rebuilt from its devastation. And Daniel 9 tells us that after the death of the Messiah, Jerusalem would be destroyed again. And it was in 70 A.D. Psalm 22 predicted that he would die by crucifixion at the hands of mockers when crucifixion hadn't even been invented. Isaiah 53 promised that his people would reject him, promised that his people would try him unjustly and scourge him and pierce him, bury him in a rich man's tomb, and that God would use his death to justify sinners, his own people, and bring him back to life. And as we see in Psalm 110, David, a thousand years before Jesus took a breath on earth, predicted his divinity, his ascension, and his eternal priesthood. And he also said he was coming back to judge. My point is this. If God has kept all these promises about Christ, he deserves our confidence now. His promises for mercy and power that you and I need each day to live for him because that's what he calls us to. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is. That's what being a real Christian is. It's following Jesus. Trusting in his grace, trusting in his mercy, but giving our lives to him. Men and women, God shapes history, and what he promises will happen, happens. This world is in rebellion, but God said it would be in rebellion. And it still belongs to Jesus Christ. He's reigning from heaven. He intercedes for you right now. He has power for you to live for him each day and he's coming back to destroy every power and authority in rebellion against him and to establish complete justice and righteousness on earth. Let's go to him. Let's go to Yahweh through him right now as he commanded us to. Let's go to him. Lord,